If I've not met you yet, my name is Chris Short, and I serve as lead pastor here at HFBC. And we are very thankful that you have joined us this morning for worship. Well, there are two realities, two realities that everyone in this room will face and shares. Life and death. Everyone in this room is physically alive. We woke up this morning. We have breath in our lungs. Our hearts are beating. We have this in common. But at one point, everyone in this room will die. Life will stop. Breathing will stop. Moving will stop. Life and death are two fundamental human experiences that we all share. It actually unites us. And it unites us with all of those who have come before us in history. No matter our ethnicity, or class, or accomplishment. And death in particular, it has been said, makes a statement about who we are. We are not too important to die. We will die like those who have gone before us. And the world will keep on moving just as it always has. Now in light of this, I would, I would like to ask you some questions. And, and these questions are heavy and, and they are sensitive. But I ask that we could think through them together this morning just briefly. When was the last time that you thought about the fact that you will die? When did you last have a conversation with someone on the subject of death? Have you seen someone die? Or has someone died in your home? You've been there to witness that. When was the last time you walked through a cemetery or attended a memorial or, or graveside service? When was the last time that you read a book or heard a sermon or watched a movie that dealt explicitly with the problem of death? I ask these questions because we all at one point will face death. There's nothing we can do to escape it. Our days are numbered. We will leave this earth in one way, in one form or another. And we're going to lose everything in this life. And we will likely be forgotten in three or four generations. It's a jolting and sobering truth, isn't it? Now you might be thinking, really? Okay. I came to church this morning for a dose of happy. I don't want to hear about death for one more second. Now it might be you. You might be thinking that. But let's address the elephant in the room. And let's engage it today. For if we don't think deeply about death, oh, we will not think deeply about life. Physically or spiritually. So with that, let me invite you to open to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John. We're going to be looking at 
John chapter 11 today. We're going to be continuing our series of this book titled Behold. And if you do not have a Bible, you can find a Bible in the pew near you on page 886. 886. We'll all be helped to keep our Bibles open to John chapter 11 this morning. Again, we're going, to look, we're going to look at the whole and kind of walk through the whole chapter. But let me read just the setting, just the first handful of verses in John 11, verses 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing and applying of his word this morning. Father, we do ask that you would bless your word. Spirit, turn the lights on in our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would give us an awareness of death, but an even greater awareness of you, Jesus, the resurrection and the life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before we walk through our passage this morning, let me invite you to zoom out for a moment to see where John 11 kind of falls in the grand picture of the Gospel according to John for a moment. John is called the beloved disciple, and he was a first-hand eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. And in his Gospel account from chapter 1 to chapter 21, it is all about the glory of God revealed through the Word of God, the Son of God, Christ Jesus. That is what John is about. And how Jesus has brought a kingdom of light and love and life to a sin-sick and spiritually dead, unlovely and dark world. And thus far in John, we have seen, we have witnessed, we have beheld six signs, six miracles. We've seen Jesus turn the water into wine. We've seen him heal a Roman official's son. We've seen him We've seen him heal a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. He has fed the 5,000 with a kid's meal. We watched him walk on water. He then gave sight to a blind man, physically and spiritually. And each of these signs is interconnected with a deeper spiritual reality of fulfillment in Jesus. And this morning, we arrive at the seventh miracle in John. And side note, John loves the number seven. He loves it. There are seven I am statements in John. There are seven miracles in John. John's other book, Revelation, is completely built around the pattern of seven. And sevens within sevens. It's amazing. The guy loves seven. Because it's the number, I believe he loves this number because it is the number for completion. It's the number for perfection. It is the number of guaranteed hope. And so, 
zooming our lens down from kind of this bigger picture into the specific of our passage today. Here's the big idea of John chapter 11. Here it is. Place your hope in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, now and forevermore. Place your hope in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, now and forevermore. And in this chapter, as we're going to see, John unpacks this hope that we're called to in four points. First, he, he gives us hope in death in verses 1 through 16. And then hope in grief in verses 17 to 37. And then hope in resurrection, verses 38 to 44. And then hope in substitution in verses 45 to 57. That's our outline for this morning. And those points will come up again on the screen as we go. So point one, hope in death. Look with me once again at John chapter 11. We're going to read 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he has the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, at the close of chapter 10, Jesus departs from Jerusalem, where he was largely rejected, and he goes uh, past the River Jordan into the wilderness, where he was largely accepted, and many come to believe in him there. And now we arrive at chapter 11, and side note, this chapter and chapter 12 really function as a bridge between the two larger sections of John. So first, the first section there is John chapters 1 through 10, and the second is 13 through 21. And this bridge really sets the stage for what's coming in the second half of John, thematically, as we're going to see in the, the future sermons, Lord willing. So let's, let's dive in. in. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, again, Jesus receives word that a man named Lazarus from Bethany, a place located, a town located right outside of Jerusalem, as we're told in verse 18. And we're told that this man is sick. And right at the start 
we are told that Lazarus' sister, Mary, is the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, though this, this event, this moment doesn't come until the next chapter, as we're going to see, again, Lord willing, next week, early readers of this gospel would have already been aware of this story and would have been aware of Jesus' intimate relationship with this family. Well, we read there in verse 3 that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lazarus, the one you love, is ill. It's simple and profound. Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves his people. And so Jesus responds, verse 4, and says to them, his disciples, and those around him, this illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, though Lazarus was withering away, his sickness would not have the last word. Jesus would. And it would be for the glory of Jesus. And so, let's not miss the point here. Suffering comes into our lives so that Jesus might be glorified through it. Suffering is not an end in itself. Suffering and death is not a destination. But in the Christian life, it is a passageway that leads to the glory of God. Well, we're told in verse 5 that Jesus loved not only Lazarus, but Mary and Martha as well. So when he heard, verse 6, that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I don't know about you, but this is one of the most troubling verses in all of the Bible. The question that we should be asking is, how could Jesus, who loved this family, not pick up and go immediately to be with Lazarus? It just seems unloving. Why would he wait? Are you asking that question? Well, Jesus waited to show this family and his disciples and us in this room today that his timeline is not our timeline. His will is not our will. His plan is not our plan. His purposes are not our purposes. His love is not like our love. Oh, Jesus is sovereign. And His will and way, including delays, are good. Even when we can't see it or understand it. So whatever suffering you have experienced or are experiencing or will experience, these verses are an encouragement to us to wait upon our Sovereign Lord. To put our trust in Him. To put our hope in Him. No matter the circumstances and no matter the timeline. Well, after this, Jesus tells His disciples, let's go down to Judea. And his disciples are cautious. Uh, they know that uh, Judea is a lion's den for Jesus. They were just looking to stone him in the previous chapters, those who lived there anyway. 
But Jesus takes the opportunity to exhort His disciples in verses 10-16. through And He says, Brothers, this is the essence of this, Brothers, while there is time, while there is day, while there is light, I have work to do. And that, even though He waited before going to Lazarus, He he assures them that Lazarus is only sleeping and that He is going to awaken him. Well, what is the disciples' response? Confusion. They knew that Lazarus was close to death and had likely already passed away. And Jesus confirms this. In verse 14, He says, Lazarus has died. And here is where His disciples and we as readers are confronted with the reality of death. And pop quiz, where is the first place we hear of death in the Bible? Where's the first place? Genesis 2. Where we read that Adam and Eve are told that if they eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen? They will die. On page 2 of our Bible, death is looking at us right in the face. The Bible doesn't hide it. The Bible confronts us with it. And this is radically and diametrically opposed to the world and the culture around us, right? The world often tries to hide and sanitize death, confine it to a hospital room. Or they fear it. The world fears it. We see this in all those anti-aging treatments out there. Or they glorify it. We see that in media. We see that in, in video games. But the Bible confronts us with it. With death early on. And then, then just later in, on page Three of the Bible, in Genesis 3, death, an unnatural enemy and problem for humanity, transitions from a hypothetical to a reality for humanity. There on page 3 of the Bible, sin and death enter the world and begin to wreak havoc. And death has been a problem for humanity ever since. But we don't have to face death without hope, beloved. For returning to John 11, after Jesus causes the disciples to face the death of Lazarus, He assures them that Lazarus' death is for their own sake, so that they might believe. We're going to hear more on this a little later. But then in verse 16, we read that Thomas, called the twin, this is Doubting Thomas, by the way, as he's popularly known, says, well, let's go, so that we might die with him. This statement's a bit bizarre, right? Bizarre. But I believe that Thomas is simply trying to grapple with the unknown here. Being with Jesus, rolling with Jesus, was a wild ride. There was a lot going on around, around him. Full of ups and downs, questions, answers, doubts, and assurances. And Thomas also knows that the Jewish leaders are out to get Jesus. He was certain of that. But though they didn't, know what they were waiting for, kind of what they were certain of, like what that would look like. What was for certain is that they were about to behold how Jesus responds to death in these following verses. So it leads us to point two, hope in grief, verses 17 to 37. Look there with me. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. 
But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rising quickly and going out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Well, we read here that Jesus comes to Bethany. And Lazarus has already been dead in the tomb for four days. And, and what, what John wants us to see and understand is that Lazarus is really, truly dead. It has been four days of no breath, no heartbeat, no life. And in the wake of Lazarus' death, we read that a group of Jews, not the Jewish leaders, mind you, but a group of consoling Jews, friends, come to be with Mary and Martha, to weep with those who weep. And we read verse 20 that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she got up and ran to him in her grief, while Mary simply sat in the house in her grief, waiting in the home. And why are they grieving? Well, Lazarus has been dead now, as mentioned, for four days. But they had also sent for Jesus, and they expected him to come immediately. But he didn't. And Lazarus died. And so both sisters, did you notice both sisters in verse 21 and then down in verse 32, both say the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, our brother, my brother, would not have died. And I wonder if you have ever thought or said something like that. Well, as some of you have heard, in March of 2022, my dear mother went in for a routine heart valve surgery down in Southern California. And while she was in surgery, there was a mistake made by the surgeon that led to a 60-day decline in her health where she slowly physically and emotionally and, and mentally withered away to death. And over the course of those 60 days, I had the privilege of going down several times to, to visit with her 
to sing to her, to read Scripture over her. And that time allowed for me to give back to my mom, the woman who prayed for me, who sang to me, who read the Proverbs every day of high school to me. Give me the opportunity to give back to her a fraction of the spiritual care that she gave to my soul. And I had the privilege to read and pray and sing at her bedside all the way to the day when Kate, my wife, and I sat at her bedside as she passed into glory. Well, because she believed in Jesus, because she was a Christian, I knew, we knew, that there would be healing on the other side of death. I knew the Lord was with her and in her and for her. I knew that. We knew that. But there were many times, many times over the course of that, that period and even since her passing where, where I have asked, where we have asked, Lord, if, if you had been there, then this wouldn't have happened. The mistake wouldn't have been made. We would have still had my mom. My girls would still have their Grammy. I thought, I have thought, well, if you had not delayed, well, things would be maybe a little different. And I share this with you because I wonder if you have thought or said or experienced anything like that. Said or, or thought those things. Well, in the midst of suffering, of death, in the midst of real grief, can you relate to Mary and Martha here? Can you relate to them? Well, even as they face death and grief and failed expectations, there is a glimmer of hope here. For after Martha says these words, she goes on in verse 22 and tells Jesus, what does she say? I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In the midst of present grief, she expresses hope and trust in Jesus. And in response, what does Jesus do? Jesus offers her hope and says, your brother will rise again. And she responds, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knows the promise of future resurrection for those who believe in the Messiah. But Jesus doesn't want her to simply have a future hope for that, for that day. She wants, he wants her and us to have present hope and a deeper faith and understanding in the here and now. And so he says the fifth I am statement there in John, verse, John 11, verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, that is physically, yet shall he live, spiritually that is. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What an amazing exchange. And here's the point of this section. Jesus wants Martha and us to see that the hope that He offers is a present hope and not simply a future hope for those who believe. Because He is the resurrection and the life because He is these things, 
because He is truly these. Those who believe have bright hope for today in the here and now, and a bright hope for tomorrow, and every tomorrow after that, to the last day. When Jesus returns, and there is a final resurrection of all people, both living and dead. Well, after this, we read in verses 28 through 36 that Martha calls Mary, and Mary runs to Jesus along with these consoling Jewish friends there in verse 31. And when she finds Jesus, she falls at his feet and repeats the same thing that Martha did earlier. And in response, the text says that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And we're told that Jesus wept. Here we get a window into Christ's humanity. We get a window into His compassionate and empathetic and loving shepherd's heart, don't we? And the consoling Jewish friends see this and they say, in verse 36 there, see how He loved Lazarus. Others ask, could not He who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Exposing that there is still confusion around Jesus and what He's doing. And there's still confusion about, around His miracles. And that many still lack eyes of faith to see Him who is accomplishing them. Well, staying here a bit longer in verse 25, notice that when Jesus sees Mary in her grief, He doesn't say, Oh, Mary, Lazarus is in a better place. He doesn't say, Mary, when is the celebration of life? He doesn't, he doesn't say, Mary, it's okay. I'm going to send you some positive thoughts and vibes. He doesn't say, oh, I'm just going to give you some time. Time will heal this. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he is deeply moved and is greatly troubled in his spirit. He is impassioned. He is righteously angry and outraged. And he weeps. And why is he righteously outraged? And why is he weeping? Well, ultimately, he is weeping over the reality and consequences of death and what death brings to those created in his image. Sorrow and pain and grief. Death is not the way it is supposed to be. And so Jesus rages against this and weeps in light of this. So let us learn from Jesus. There's a deep application for us here. What do people need most when they are grieving? It's not platitudes. It's not a celebration. It's not quick fix, quippy encouragement. No, what the grieving need ultimately is our presence, our ear, and our tears. To weep with those who weep. And in time, in time, to share the hope of Christ from His Word. That's what the grieving needs. So let us learn from Jesus here to lament with those who lament and grieve with those who grieve. But if you are the one grieving, there is an application here for us as well. To not retreat. To not isolate. 
to not live in denial of death. Denial of grief. But these verses are an encouragement for us to go to Jesus. For us to invite others to sit and weep with us. Well, if the story stopped here, wouldn't that be sad? That would be rather hopeless. Jesus wept, the end. But that's not what happens. That leads us to point three. There's hope in resurrection. Look at me at verses 38 to 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. A loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. We read here in verse 38 that Jesus is deeply moved in heartache over sin and death. He goes to the tomb, the cave where Lazarus is buried in, and and he, verse 36, says to roll away the stone. And Martha says, Jesus, Lazarus is dead. If you open it, there's going to be a wicked odor. It's going to be bad. See, Martha believes, but doesn't anticipate what the Lord is going to do. So Jesus says, verses 40 to 41, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And after this, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prays and proclaims loudly that the Father always hears his prayers. And when he's, what he's about to do is so that many would believe and know that he is God. And then he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? The man, Lazarus, who died, came out. His feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine this scene? Notice the very word of Christ. Lazarus is resurrected. At his very word, breath fills his lungs. At his very word, his heart began to beat. At his word, Lazarus stood up and walked out of the tomb. There is power in the word of Christ, spoken then and spoken now in these 66 books. For the same voice that told the disciples to follow me, the beginning of John, the same voice that that told the Roman official, go, your son will live. The same voice that told the paralytic, get up and walk. The same voice that said to the blind man after anointing him with, with dust and water, go to Siloam and walk was given sight. The same voice that cried out, Lazarus, come out. There is power in the word an authority of Jesus. It is beyond compare. Well, what does this miracle teach us and show us? Well, I wish to offer you five points. First, first, Lazarus was resurrected, as mentioned earlier in verse 4, so that the glory of God through the Son of God might be displayed. Lazarus' sickness 
His death, His healing, was first and foremost a display of the unending, unlimited glory of Jesus. Second, Lazarus was resurrected to display that Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And as the resurrection and the life, He's the only one who can resurrect the dead and give life. Abundant eternal life in personal communion with God to those who were once separated from Him in sin and death. And so this miracle is a tangible, visual parable that displays that Jesus is who He says He is. Third, Lazarus was resurrected so that many would come to believe in Jesus. Simple point, but this miracle spread like wildfire across the region, and many came to believe in Him. We read this down in verse 45. Fourth, Lazarus was resurrected to strengthen Martha's, Mary's, the disciples, and our faith and hope in Jesus. See, though we may believe and hope in Jesus, we need the hope strengthened day by day, right? We need our strength, our, our hope strengthened. And so, whether we are in the valley or in the pasture land, this miracle is given to us to anchor our hope in Christ, in the present and the future. Well, fifth, Lazarus was resurrected to reveal that only Jesus can give new life. He can only give resurrection. And as we've seen in John, all of Jesus' miracles have a deep spiritual reality behind them. And so, beloved, this is key. Lazarus didn't get up on his own. He didn't save himself. He didn't mentally assent himself by the power of positive thinking. He didn't use his will to resurrect himself. No, he was dead, but he was made alive. That's what we see. By the sovereign work of Jesus, by pure grace. This is not to be foolishly debated, friend. But this is to be fervently delighted in. Now, if we stop here, we still have a problem, right? We still have a problem. See, through Lazarus, though he was given physical life, he would physically die again. And in some ways, we should physically, or we should, you know, kind of pity, pity Lazarus. The man had to physically die twice. And so if we stop here, we still ultimately have a problem. And that problem impacts Lazarus' hope and Martha's hope, Mary's hope the disciples' hope, and our hope. So what is the problem? And what is the solution? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Look with me at the end. There in verses 45 to 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen him, what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. Well, in the wake of this miracle in verses 45 to 46, there are mixed responses, as we've seen over and over in John. Some believe, some want to hear more. Some are going and telling the Jewish authorities what's going on. And we read there in verse 47 that there's a council thrown together, and this is the holy huddle of Jewish leadership right here. And Caiaphas is there, and this council is asking, verse 47, what are we to do here? This guy is performing many miracles. This is getting out of hand. And they are powerless. They are powerless to stop Jesus. They don't have the judicial power. Rome would have to do that. And so we read that Caiaphas says, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand. So then he makes an argument. He says, catch this. It is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Notice what Caiaphas is saying here. Though he he thinks he's making an argument for political expediency, he's also making a prophetic argument that one man would die to save the nation. And John, John adds commentary to this. He says Caiaphas did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation, but also to gather the one children of God who have been scattered abroad and put them into one people, one flock, as we heard in the previous chapter. John is helping us see into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that through the mouth of Caiaphas, prophetic truth that Jesus would soon die. And that he would die as a what? A substitute in the place of his people. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. All the children of God. And so rightfully and ironically, Caiaphas prophesies the hope in Jesus that we have. That he is the substitutionary lamb. That he is the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. And that Jesus would, would be that last scapegoat. That last substitutionary lamb in and through his gospel. In and through the cross and resurrection. For on the cross, Christ died as the sinless substitute in the place of his people. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished once and for all. There's no sacrifice, no substitute, no scapegoat needed any longer. And there he died. But death did not have the final word. For three days later, he got up from the dead. He was resurrected in power and glory. And he had victory over sin and death for all of those who believe in him for salvation. In his death and resurrection, death was put to death. Swallowed up in victory. And apart from the blood of the Lamb, apart from his resurrection, there could be no salvation. And there could be no resurrection for sinners like us. His death and his resurrection is the guarantee, the present hope, and the present resurrection, and all's well, the future hope and the future resurrection for those who believe. 
And if you have been brought into union with the Lamb who has been slain by the Holy Spirit, if you have repented of your sins, all of those ways that you have sinned against God in word, thought, and action, and if you are turning toward Christ by faith today, then like that, you are walking with Jesus. You are walking with Him. You have been given spiritual resurrection. You have been given spiritual life. Not just on the last day, but now. And though we still experience the real presence of sin, the impact of the fall, the impact of death, the world, the flesh, and the enemy of our souls, because of Christ's work on our behalf, we are new creations. Now and forevermore. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Amen? Amen. And so, friend, if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, if you're not covered by His blood, if you don't have resurrection life in Him, I'll be standing in the, at the door in the back after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk with you. Or you could talk with another pastor here. Or you could talk to someone who's smiling in the pew as I was sharing that gospel truth. But if you are a Christian, dear brother, dear sister, this gospel is for you. Not just on the day that you were saved, but every day. Every day. This gospel is your hope in life and in death, Christian. All praise to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Well, the passage ends, verse 54, with Jesus not going near the Jewish leaders, but instead going to a place called Ephraim, where he stayed there with his disciples. And we, we find there at the end of the passage that the Passover feast is at hand. And the Jews are still looking to arrest him. But that won't happen until the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18. But until then, Jesus has so much more to do and say in the chapters ahead. Well, in closing, taking in this whole chapter, what happens when Jesus comes face to face with death? What happens? He has victory over it. He has overcome it. And that victory will stand from yesterday to today to the day that he returns. Oh, death does not have the final word in your life, Christian. That's the good news of John 11 for you. What grace, what mercy, what a Savior, what hope. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us an awareness, a greater awareness of sin and death, but an even greater awareness of your mercy and grace in Christ Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Lord, we ask that we would delight in that, that we would revel in that, and that we would continuously, day by day, with your help, Holy Spirit, look to you for resurrection life and for hope. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.